Let me pray. God is good. God is great. Amen. Let's pray for real. Our great God and Father, we, um, we're bugging off of your uh, decision, as Sister Tiff was saying, uh, and Pastor E. Uh, your decision to not let us continue going on the conveyor belt to hell. You marking us out beforehand and then navigating the circumstances of this life to ensure that we'd run smack dab into the gospel. And that when we ran into the gospel, we didn't run into the gospel with blinders on, but you removed the blinders so that we could see the glory of the gospel. That message bugged us out so much that uh, something in our souls began to catch on fire. We thank you, Lord God, that when that, that, that fire within us raged, the word of God was there to comfort us about the fact that the punishment we deserved was endured by another. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom over and over again your Bible says you sent. You dispatched him here to stand in the place of sinners. And then you cocked back the hand of your wrath and you unleashed it on him. Father, because of that, because of his adequate sacrifice, many of us, Lord God, stand in your presence as righteous, cool with you able to be in your family. And now, Lord God, we have this thing every week. We get together at least once collectively and we celebrate your faithfulness and your reality and your goodness. And as part of our identity, we let the world catch us rallied around a single entity, the triune God. And so, Father, as the scriptures, which is able to make us wise and school us as to the issues of salvation is cracked, we pray that you will be pleased, that you will assist, that you would aid, that you would enlighten, and that you would do the, uh, the ministering. Rock your people, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing through John. Every week, every week on Tuesday for us, the trash people come. And it's often interesting to see how before the trash people come, another group of people come. And they rummage through our trash. And it's amazing to see the things that they come up with. Ceiling fans, broken blenders, Bent bars, frames from windows, all kinds of things that everyone else has discarded, they pull out. It reminds me of the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Nowhere do we see the reality of some seeing trash and some seeing treasure. Nowhere will you see that more vividly than in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to some and a chief cornerstone for others. Jesus Christ is the smell of life to some. He's the smell of death to others. Jesus Christ is valuable and to be esteemed and prized to some. For others, he's no one in particular. 
As Epiphany Fellowship, we pride ourselves, not in an arrogant way, but it is our boast, uh, in a God who is more significant than anything else ever created. He himself is not created. It's here that we recognize that he came to his own and his own felt he was trash. His own received him not. But to those who, by God's grace, peeped the treasureness of him, it says to those who received him, he gave them to right, the right to become children of God or to be considered the children of God. Today we've been following John because John's portrayal of Jesus Christ is that there's life in his name and by believing in him, you get that life. John's whole premise is he's treasure. Don't sleep on him. But John lets you know, but, but everybody doesn't see him as treasure. And so we've just been trekking. By the time you get to chapter 9 of John, he lets you know through an illustration. But let me tell you what the problem is. The problem is that he isn't treasure. The problem isn't that he's glorious. The problem is people are born blind. So he, had, he's, he tells us a story about Jesus meeting a man born blind, and Jesus uses it as an illustration. It says, see, this will illustrate what's wrong with people and why they, they do me like the Pharisees do me. And so we get the nine, and Jesus heals a man born blind, and that man born blind who's never been schooled like the Pharisees in the, uh, have, that man born blind, when he runs into Jesus with a new pair of eyes, and Jesus says, you believe in the Son of Man? He said, who's that? He says, it's me. And he says, I believe, and he worshiped them. To worship Jesus Christ takes a miracle. And so every week when we stand here and we put this up, like some of us understand why he's worthy of a long series. Some of us understand why a whole book, matter of fact, 66 of them are devoted to him. Some of us understand why every praise and worship song has him somewhere embedded in it. And we're trying to get an amped and rowdy response, not to us, not to the vocalists, not to the drummers, not to the keyboardists, not to the man twisting knobs over there, the sound man. We're trying to get a rowdy applause for a God who's treasure. They tell me that Philly is on their way to being number one in terms of our murder rate. We may be it. I fell off, like after 100, I fell off keeping count. What everybody would want to know, I just sat there, I said, man, if I was a mayor, what could I tell people about how we're going to solve crime? What can I tell people about how we're going to solve teenage pregnancy? What, you can list any list of sins, and there really is a simple solution to it. It's not that simple in light of man's inability, but it really is simple. Up people's valuing of a God who's antithetical to the things that trip us up. If people were more in love with Jesus Christ and imitated him as an example of it, crime would go down. But before you get extreme, we just look in the church and say, but man, can we up our cherishing of Jesus Christ? The goal of every week when we get up here is not just to hear, yo, you killed it. Now, that's something that goes on in speaking or rapping. You want to hear, yo, you killed it. But at the end of the day, after hearing, yo, you killed it, you begin to grow disenchanted with, man, I killed it. If you killed it. You start wanting to hear somebody say, man, I'm digging Jesus Christ more. 
and it's starting to affect me through the week, the fact that Jesus Christ means more to me today than he did before. A person, not as programs, because we've already said people like the stuff that comes with Jesus, even if they don't like Jesus. Like I like the use of the light bulb without having any concern for Thomas Edison or peanut butter without really feeling George Washington Carver. I mean, like, I don't like you don't even care about the people who spark something. You get into what they sparked and leave them to the side. And so today, we'd like to continue in chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter, well, we're going to finish chapter 11 and go into chapter 12. And we're going to look at this issue of treasure or trash. Treasure or trash. Pastor E finished last week talking about Jesus doing one of the most, I guess, climatic signs out of all the book of the signs. We're closing. Chapter 2 starts what they call the book of the signs, where within John's gospel, he just puts together a whole bunch of things that show Jesus' power, but not so you could just say he's powerful, but so you can grow attached and begin to prize the person who pulled off the sign. And so Jesus comes to chapter 12 and well, chapter 11, and he raises somebody from the dead. And what we see here is it's almost like the, the, you know, the fireworks. The fireworks start off one way and you should be clapping a little bit along the way. But then they intend to hit you with that last little rally. So it's like, pop, pop. You're like, oh, that, pew, oh yeah. Pew, oh, man, that's a bit pang. Ah. Oh, pew, oh. I mean, it's a lot of whoa, whoa, whoa. But then they hit you with the barrage at the end. That's when you know it's over. Like, oh, and everybody. Now, it's ugly when they do all of that and nobody claps. You know what I'm saying? You'd be like, that's it? Because if they put that on the front end, it will be ugly. And then all of a sudden, it's like, Whoa, bang, it's important for them to put the grand finale at the end. But if the grand finale doesn't rock you, they feel like they failed. Well, Jesus starts changing water to wine. Oh, I can't believe it. Starts telling people uh, all kinds of things about what makes him better than Jacob, what makes him better than Abraham, feeds people. Oh, my goodness, that's like a whoa. Heals a man born blind, that's like, oh, whoa. But then he raises somebody from the dead. It should ju- people should just lose it. <laughs> Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed. That's a thunderous applause. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. We start off, it doesn't seem like much. Like, what do you get out of that? Many saw, many believed, but some went and told. But that but there is to let you know this is in contrast to belief. In John, the biggest thing you can do, the best thing you can do, the most important thing you must do is believe. Any contrast to belief is has more weight than for us. Do you believe? Nah. Oh, man, you should believe. But in John, you don't believe? That is spelling imminent danger. Especially if you don't believe after seeing somebody raised from the dead. What more is he going to do? 
And so the idea here is treasure or trash. If you don't see Jesus Christ as treasure, you're going to lean towards seeing him as trash. You say, those are polar opposites. I don't see him as treasure. That's too strong. I mean, he's chill. I don't see him as trash because I don't dislike him. I'm somewhere in the middle. Well, you not, like the Bible doesn't give you these prerogatives. Like the Bible wants you to understand that if you don't see him as treasure, you can't be seeing him because he is treasure. If you don't see him as treasure, then you're going to see him as something less than that, and that might as well be trash. It's the difference between if you have a, a, a piece of a money. Money is more than paper. If you don't see it as money, you'll use it any old way. Let me get that. What's that? $100 bill. I just want to write this phone number down and give it to, like, I, like, I don't care. You don't see, you see this as trash? Not really. I'm just, I see it as paper. Yeah, but you might as well see it as trash because you're not going to use it properly. Well, that's what it is about Jesus. He's saying, if you don't see it, many people believe and they, they pledge themselves to him. But some people didn't believe. They walked away indicating that these people were in trouble. And they went to the Pharisees and they said, Pharisees, yo, I, I, can't, I don't know what to make of it. There was a dude who was, who was dead and now he's not. The Pharisees are looking at him like, word? Hmm. And look what it says here, 46. Uh, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They didn't even deny that it was true. Here's when you know when you don't see him right. Yeah, he raised from the dead. So? Yeah, he was born of a virgin. Yeah, he, um, a dude that never saw before saw when he spit on the ground and made a mud pie, put it on his eyes and told him to go wash in a river called Scent. Yeah. <laughs> These people start getting together and saying, man, we got to do something about him. This cat is doing signs. He's healing people. He's restoring their sight. Now he's raising people from the dead. And the implication here is that when you don't see him as treasure, you believe him to be trash. And, of course, those are strong, strong words to get you to know that you will treat him like less than he is. And so you'll debate with him rather than believe in him. You'll go back and forth with the Jesus Christ who says, I am he. Well, are you better than Jacob? Well, I mean, uh, Jesus, all through John's gospel, John is saying some people see him right. And some people don't. And in our culture, some people see him right. Some people don't. And so when we, we're moving and plotting, we're headed toward the cross. And so John is amping up and he's going to look at three areas where people must see Jesus right to understand three aspects about Jesus. To understand his death, to understand his worth, and to understand his rule. 
And so we're going to look at that today. Look, they get the chief priests and the Pharisees and they gathered the council, which uh, is just another way of saying they gathered something called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were the leaders in Israel who sat under Roman rule, about 70 70 members who sat there and they sort of ran Israel, but uh, ran the Jews under Rome. And so the Pharisees used to get together and they were a group of people who said, we don't care who's ruling us, long as they let us meticulously follow Jewish tradition and law. The Sadducees, they were the aristocrats. They were the cats who sort of were born with the silver spoon in their mouth, and all they cared about was being able to have great political advantage and able to have high places. And so what you see is they come together like, yo, don't you want to keep worshiping uh, and and, and keeping the law? Yeah. Don't you want to keep sitting on the political um, seats? Yeah. Well, we need to get together because there's a Jesus who's getting so popular, he's about to mess up everything for us but they don't come straight out and say it look what they say uh they say yo what are we doing what are we to do this man performs many signs if we let him go on like this everyone will believe in him and the romans will come and take away both our place and our nation And the reason why that doesn't mean much to us is because we don't have a place that we cherish like that. And we don't sort of, we take it, we take for granted our nation. But for them, these were nationalists. These were the cats that like, you know, you know how you, the difference between us and suicide bombers, like, I don't know, like something about Americans, like we never would call ourselves, like we, we wouldn't be suicide bombers. I mean, we ain't killing ourselves for nothing. Cats over there on a whole new, and I mean, they'll take anybody out and kill themselves. They, they, they're that committed. Well, that's the idea here. The idea here is they're so committed, they're worried about their place. That's just a reference to the temple and their nation. But that's really just a facade. Follow me. The idea here is that when you don't see Jesus Christ right, he's a more of a liability than a Lord to you. So he starts messing your thing up, and you don't, you, but you, you can't just say, dang, we can't feel Jesus like that because then I won't be able to do what I want to do. We have to find some way to sort of mask a noble effort, something noble in order to help people to say, yeah, you're right. We should move Jesus Christ out the way. So this is what they say. They say, look, uh, I don't want Rome to come because if people start saying he's the Messiah, everyone keeps believing on him, then it's going to look like we're not trustworthy rulers because Rome basically had a, had a deal with the Sanhedrin. Yeah, you go ahead and rule. Now, don't trip. You can't kill anybody without coming to us. There's some things you can't do without talking to us. But for the most part, y'all go ahead. Uh, y'all go ahead. We'll keep in touch and y'all rule them for us, under us. So they're saying, man, we ain't going to be the big shots anymore. Jesus is starting to be the big shot. And so now they look and they say, all right, look, Caiaphas, one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now stop right here. I want you all to keep with me. We've been studying a book that wants you to place faith in Jesus Christ to the point where it makes you do a 180. Wherever you were going before you met Jesus Christ, you say, er, put the brakes on, go, and you start following him. 
We met disciples who dropped the whole fishing business on the day of their greatest catch due to Jesus Christ and left everything. And John is commending that. Some things in the Bible are prescriptive. It's just telling you what happened. Other things are descriptive. It's telling you, excuse me, some things are descriptive. It just describes what happened. Other things are prescriptive. It's telling you to do something similar. So this wasn't just descriptive because many people met Jesus Christ and that was the end of life as they had known it. It was a new beginning and they went in another direction. We saw that all through the scriptures. Divine callings always change the game up for somebody. That's why you all have to ask yourself, have I ever really been called? And what's the, 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 the proof that I've been called is I can't go back to where I was when I was called. See, some people, they, they sort of call themselves. So when times get tough, they just could do something else. When you're called, you, you run into Jesus Christ, you're called, and you say, mm, dang, I can't do that anymore. And so here you have men who did that. Well, now you got people who have a problem with this kind of impact that Jesus has. When Jesus comes on the scene, he messes stuff up for the person who wants to keep what they have intact. So we see that here. These people had the cut. They had comforts. They had positions. They had everything. One of them gets up and says and exposes the hypocrisy. Look what he says. He says, you know nothing, meaning while the other someone said, what are we going to do? Oh, no, Jesus is getting popular. Caiaphas, who happened to be the high priest, comes in and says, Dad, y'all don't know nothing. Man, what, like, how long am I going to be in this, this, this pack of morons? It's clear. And look what he says here, verse 50. Excuse me, verse 49. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It's better for you is the operative word. The idea that Jesus being out the picture is often better for you. But you don't just say Jesus should be out the picture. You say something that makes it seem like you care about something more noble. It's better that for you that Jesus is out the picture and that one man should die rather than the whole nation dying. And so he looks and he says, plays on their nationalistic and their political and their social emotions. And he says, come on, fellas, you don't want this nation going topsy-turvy. Calvin, in his commentary, made a great comment. He says, you see, this is how people who are not on point with Jesus Christ, this is how they reason. They find something noble to cover up the fact, really, they just want to do what they want to do. And that's what we do. Well, I really want to, I always have to pick on musicians because that's the world I've been, I've been functioning in. And this is what we have all the time. We have people who say, mm, I know this is a godless individual. I know the music that they make is going to march people straight to hell, but they need a hot track. I make hot tracks. I went to the church, so we start with this. I, see, I tried to go to the church, but they didn't pay enough. So what I had to do was I have to eat, right? God said if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat, right? So, and they find, see, that's noble. You, you find something noble. And so if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So, uh, so, so I went over there to him, and he said, yo, if you make me a track, I'll pay you. Because, you know, the church don't pay you like that. So I reasoned to myself, if I make a track for him, I could lead him to the Lord that way. So I figured I'll make them hot tracks, and then I'll lead them to the Lord. 
That's the same thing they said. Listen, we want our nation strong. We want our temple to remain. We want worship in the house of God to remain booming. So let's kill a man. It's better for you if Jesus, look, it's all because Jesus is getting popular that they're even having this talk. Remember, the, after the resurrection, they said enough is enough. Now, they had already planned they were going to kill him. But after this, they really planned that they were going to kill him. Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist said, wait, he must increase, I must decrease. See, when he's treasure, his increase becomes paramount. And your decrease becomes just the logical repercussion of him increasing. But see, we live in a culture where we feel in ourselves and we like ourselves and we like what we've worked so hard to get. In fact, America got to us first and it told us, go get yours. Why do you think I went to school this long? So I could. Why do you think I work like I do? So I can. Now I meet Jesus and you're telling me the very thing that I worked so hard to get. Now it, it, it would be better for me if that didn't even come up. And so it's an either or how you see him. And his death is the first thing in this text that starts getting confused. Look what it says here. He did not, John says, verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord about it's better for one man to die for the nation rather than the whole nation, right? John says, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. Stay with me. Little does Caiaphas know is that because he was the, 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 the chief high priest and it was a Jewish mindset that God spoke to the high priest regardless of whether or not they were uh, godly or not. We see Saul prophesying in the Bible as king. We also see high priests, God using them to make statements whether they were in a good relationship with God or not. And so God leverages what Caiaphas says to pack a theological truth that if you don't see him as tre treasure, you'll see like Caiaphas it'll be just the death of one man so other niceties can continue but what Caiaphas didn't know is he actually was spitting theology that later on would, would manifest to be actually what God was saying just not the way Caiaphas meant it he said it would be good if one man were to die instead that's what we call a substitutionary death Yo, you should die instead of us. The Bible makes clear that we must embrace the fact that God's death, Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. You say, I know that. Most people don't know that. Me and Pastor E were on the ad the other day. The first thing the dude said to us, because he we didn't even say it. He just could tell we were going there. He said, Jesus did not die for your sins. He, I mean, explicitly. He didn't die for you. But he liked Jesus. But Jesus didn't die for you. The first thing, Caiaphas actually talked about a man dying so someone else wouldn't have to. But when, he, when, you, when you see him correctly, God teaches you that Jesus actually died in somebody's place. And that's critical because you don't place your life in the, and you don't place your life in the hands of another unless they're going to do something. Turn over to Romans 5 real quick. 
And this is the reason why, like, the beauty of the Christian faith is that, man, we, we got answers for these questions. Why in the world are y'all worshiping a dude you never seen who died? Well, one, he resurrected, and two, Romans 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor E talked about the beef earlier. There's a beef that God has. That's another thing. On the same day, Pastor, we, 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 we left him, walked about three more blocks, came into another group. We said, hey, man, y'all are killing it. We call ourselves, like, making the most of every opportunity. We gave him a couple compliments. And he said, and Pastor E said, I'm just glad God squashed the beef that he had with me. When God have a beef with you? We said, oh, and we, you know, we didn't know we were up against people that were hardened to the, to the gospel at the time. We were like, oh, well, you know, but through sin, sin, what's sin? Well, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness? What's that? I mean, before you know it, we were off on, we are really animals, and we ought to be looking, looking in the book of the dead and all kinds of stuff. But it goes to show you here, God says, yo, the Christian truth is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You ain't going to see, that dude is too good to die. Take me instead. Who's going to say that? I mean, scarcely if a dude is that good. Go ahead, man. You got all these kids, and I'm at the end of my rope. Ah, man, I'll jump in front of the bullet for you. He says, but what about an ungodly cat? What about if Osama bin Laden shows up? Who would die for him? He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were Osama bin Laden's, Christ died for us. Verse 10. Now, if we, while we were Osama bin Laden's, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Flip back over to John. It's better for you that Jesus Christ be done away with just to cover up for. It would be better if Jesus didn't come up because then my plan and my prosperity would continue. Well, he goes on and they say, huh, listen, he didn't say this on his own accord, but because he's the high priest, he prophesied. That, so he also prophesied not just a substitutionary death, but look what he says here. But also... John says he was saying that God would gather into one the children of God. Because he says, excuse me, verse 52, I'm sorry. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So look, Caiaphas says, yo, one dude should die so that everybody else doesn't have to die. John says, I'll go you one better. One should die so that other people, but not just the nation of Israel, but for all the people that are scattered that God is going to snatch. All those people God, Christ would die for in their place. And so he says, not only is it a substitutionary death, but it's a reconciliatory death. We got to use these big words somewhere, so might as well do it here. The dude told me don't use it on the street because they won't understand, so let me use it in here. Reconciliatory. Basically... Not only, like, it's remember what, what Romans said. Romans said, while we were at odds with God, while we were on the other side of the tracks, while we were spitting out threats to God, he died for us. 
He says, so, but a reconciler squashes the beef, and then there's a say, now go on somewhere. Now, I forgive you. Just go on somewhere. Reconciliation says, I forgive you. Come here. Give me a hug. Oh, man, come here. Give me a hug. Yo, come to my crib. No, 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 no. Move in. No, you ain't got nowhere to say. Move in. No, I, I got a nice wing for you. And uh, Reconciliation takes two people who used to beef and brings them together. The Bible also talks about propitiation. Just goes to show you that in one sentence, he spurted something about a truth that he didn't even realize he was on to something. So John says God had more packed than that than he even imagined. So one is substitutionary. One is reconciliatory, especially if you're, as a Christian, you believe in this propitiation. The Bible makes it clear that God also was upset. Because, you know, most people hear that God had a beef and they think it was a calm, like, it's beef, but, you know, God wasn't frowning. But that's why Hebrews talks about God is an awesome God. Like, it, it's a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. He's a consuming fire. A tempest is all around him. See, we got to start taking our cues about God from the Bible and not culture and pictures. It's just like Jesus. The other day we were marveling at a nice picture of Jesus who looked like he just got slapped up a couple times and then nailed on the cross with a couple of tacks. And so they had a nice guy with a couple of, like, three streams of trickle and a couple of tacks in his arm. And he was down and was like, all right, it's over. <laughs> like, but when you look at that, you, it begins to affect you when you get your cues from culture. For you to have the sense that he's treasure, you have to believe that he stepped in your place. That means you have to believe that he died for you. That means you have to believe that you're a sinner and God should have killed you, right? For you to believe it, it should be reconciliatory because for you to value him as treasure, you got to believe that God saw you as scattered over there and he had to lasso you in. Re to be reconciled, see, if you were doing the reconciling, that means you came to God. When he's reconciling, that means that he brought you to himself. Once again, this amps up the likelihood you'll see him as treasure just by looking at his death. If it's propitiation, that means you ought to tell your friends, yo, don't get, get it twisted. You should be scared right now. You should be scared. Now that we're in a day where people don't really preach this kind of this kind of message on the grand stages, I mean, they do it little rallies and outside when it ain't their church members. But in churches, most people don't preach like this because that would make people say I'm offended and leave, right? So whenever I'm a guest preacher and I go in, I start talking about and God is mad and da, 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 you 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 feel the stillness in the room and you're like ah, but He loves you. You know you are, like I see why we start with He loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life because it just messes up the whole mood when you start with well see you're a sinner and God has beef with you and he dislikes you very much and he'll crush you if you don't come to Christ like you don't like that don't make for like, would you come back and do our youth retreat next year so but the idea here is if you don't see him right why is he treasure if he didn't do very much not only that expiation right we got all these big words the Bible makes it clear that he's treasure, and you see it in his death because his death also cleanses. It will be another thing, see? If you was, all, like, God found you, he says, uh, squash the beef, and then he pulls you to himself, and he says, come to my crib. But everybody there has a bath, and then you come in still smelly, and you come in still dirty, and you're a king's kid, and everybody looks taken care of except you. Who's that? Oh, our new son. Well, how come he doesn't look as clean? Who's that? Oh, a, a new daughter that we just adopted. Well, how come she looks raggedy and everybody else looks spiffy? An adopted child would feel crazy. 
if they were in a new home, but everybody else got dope kicks, everybody else got clean clothes, and they were left in the same clothes that they had when they were unadopted. Expiation accomplished by that same death that the Pharisees slept on and thought they were just getting rid of a guy who was messing up their personal dreams. In that one act of his dying, it not only brought you into the family, but put new clothes on you, gave you a bath and made you look as dope as Jesus Christ, who is the original son. Moral uh, influence. This was an example. Some people say Christ didn't die for sins. He just died to be an inspiration to us all. Literally. This is Christians have to debunk this. They'll say, oh, come on, man. All this like Christ didn't have to die for sins. He just died so he could inspire you with his death. Rocky Balboa style. The one, the one where he lost. You know, even though he lost you still, he was still the hero. You'd be like, oh, he lost. Oh, but I'm telling you, I just want to run up the steps. I want to train. I want to hit meat. I'm telling you, I want to drink eggs raw. I mean, a, a loser can inspire. But with his death, it did inspire. Caiaphas didn't realize that he was onto something. John is, again, John is so clever. He doesn't want you to miss the irony. Caiaphas comes into some cats that's just floundering, like, oh no, what are we gonna do? This guy is getting more popular. First thing he says is, ah, oh, you guys don't know anything. And haven't you calculated the fact that the death that Caiaphas says would be better? It's better if we kill him so Rome won't come in and smash things. By the time John's gospel was written, the readers were laughing at Caiaphas because Rome did come in. They were displaced from their leadership and the temple was destroyed. So can you imagine listening to Caiaphas laughing at people? Like, you don't know anything. The way to keep our positions and maintain the temple and stay on top is by killing Jesus. And then Jesus dies and Rome still comes in and smashes everything. And they probably got in their minds and we had to bribe somebody to say his body was stolen. We still don't know what's going on with that part. John's saying, look at the irony. 54. Oh, no, excuse me, 53. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So last week, chapter 11, Jesus culminates his signs, the culminator. <laughs> Blow. If you don't believe this, you know this is indicating that you're on the wrong side of the fence. By the time we get here, Jews have indicated not only don't some of us see him as trash, some of us see him as treasure. Caiaphas says, okay, here's the plan. We're going to kill him. From that point on, Jesus, knowing that his time was near, said, okay, let me handle my business on my way to the cross. I only have a few weeks left. Let me do this. 
Uh, so now he's looking and he's, he's walking among the people. He says, I'm going to stay away. I'm going to get near. See, Jesus wasn't ducking his death. So he says, I'm going to be near because when it's time to go, I'm just going to try and just take it like a man, a God man. But while I'm sitting here, I'm going to hang around and I'm going to do a few things. So he goes to Ephraim. Now, when the Passover comes, he gets closer. And so his death, we've looked at his death. You, if you see him as treasure, you see his death a certain way. If you see him as trash, you'll see it incorrectly. Now let's look at his worth. Let's start chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner for him there. Martha served Lazarus, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Let me stop real quick. This is the beautiful thing about this. We're in uh, Man to Man, we started uh, a section called The Godly Person Prizes Christ, Christ Prizes. And we started challenging ourselves on do we prize Jesus Christ. We're going to see here that those who prize Jesus Christ, they, have an, uh, uh, they know his worth. You have to know his worth in order to prize him, in order for you to up your, your, your value of him, which affects your behavior and the way you live life, you have to know his worth. First of all, he's worth. Uh, now, see, we're taught, before I get to that, we're taught that God is big. We're taught that God is strong. When I was growing up, I was scared of God, but I didn't see him as beautiful. I wrote about it in my rhyme. I was like, yo, I didn't want your presence. I just didn't want hell more. I didn't want your heaven. I just didn't want hell more. It wasn't you so much, Jesus. It's just, you know, when I was young, I almost drowned, right? I almost drowned. Like, I didn't want to tell anybody I couldn't swim, so somehow I got taken out to the deep end. This is when I was with an elementary school class trip, so you know they will clown you till you go home crying. Yo, but, you know, sooner or later when your life depends on it, you don't care if you get clowned or not. So I'm like, oh, oh bleh, 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 bleh. They see, you know, I was on a dude. I was on this dude who was chilling with his girl. This dude was chilling with his girl. Next thing you know, I'm on him. I'm like, ugh, ugh. Like, I didn't care about him, but right now, it don't matter. Anybody's shoulders was going to work that was over water. So I'm sitting on him. I'm like, ah, like, that's how it is. Some people will grab Jesus like, oh, man, till the coast is clear. No, this guy, so he's like, listen. We grabbed Jesus Christ. So when I grew up, I was like, I'm, a, I'm scared of Jesus, and I'll grab him, you know, till the coast is clear. But it's not like I'm rocked off of him. And if you look to, I mean, if you do a survey of your heart, do you like the person of Jesus? We're going to look at this because we're going to see an example of someone who, who makes you embarrassed to say you love him. If it doesn't look anything like this. Shy and I were talking the other day about the issue of Lazarus, and we were trying to figure out, man, was like what was causing Jesus all the turmoil. You know, Pastor E did a great job in pointing to the fact that it was the impact of sin and death, and I was sitting there wrestling with that because I was like, mm. you know, and I, I think I, I latched on to this issue of the unbelief part too, which he also talked about. And I could envision Mary being the straw that broke the camel's back. Because if everybody was indicting him, and they were, everybody came to him, if only you were here then, everybody was acting like Jesus missed the cue, like Jesus, like that, you usually come through, but that's sort of what you get. So can you imagine Jesus' heart feeling it, and he's like, yo, but didn't I tell you I'm the resurrection? Didn't I tell you if you believe you? Didn't, like, because he kept saying it, like, didn't I tell you, like, why are you treating me like I'm not good for it? 
when Mary comes to him and just flops at his feet and says the same thing that Martha said, Dag, if only you would have been here, it was a, also another indictment, right? So he cries, he's weeping because he's frustrated, he's angry, I think he's hurt, and at the same time he knows what he's about to do, so that makes it worse because he's like, Dad, you you messing it up. It's like if somebody said, I can't believe you didn't remember my birthday, and da, 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 you're like, ah, here, we... Open the door. Surprise. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't know. Like, you messing it up. You didn't diss me. You didn't made me mad. And now I got to usher you into the surprise that I had right behind curtain number one. Same thing. It's like, dang, I was just getting, I lingered on purpose. I was getting ready to come. And the last person I thought would come at me like I wasn't good for it. Oh, because it always talks about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were real tight with him. So I'm thinking of that. Now you flip to this scene. You flip to this scene, chapter 12. The, the last time we saw Mary at Jesus' feet, it was flopping down saying, if only you would have. Now we get ready to look. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus uh, had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served Lazarus, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore... He's worthy of a no reservations mentality. If you treasure Christ, there's no reservation with you. They didn't do dinner like us. I got some chicken fingers in the microwave. Be right with you, Jesus. For them to do this, it, was, it cost something. To do a dinner, and it's like the banquet. That's about $45 for a plate. Maybe you're not. Come on, $50. Y'all here 60. $45 for a plate. You're like, man, what kind of banquet is this? So use the word banquet. Because if you call it a dinner, nobody wants to pay $45 for dinner. If you hear banquet, you think a little, at least a little more upscale. But what do you get here? You're going to come and you see it's just a dinner, but it's called banquet. <clears throat> but they gave a dinner or a, 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 a huge meal for Jesus. First of all, he's already being honored. Now, get what John is saying. John is saying he just came. He's been arguing with Pharisees. Jesus is arguing with Pharisees. Jesus is being dissed by Pharisees. Jesus has a hit out on him by the Pharisees. Then it switches you over and somebody's throwing Jesus a dinner. Trash, treasure. Come over here. We got a meal. Stop arguing with them. Come on over here. Are you throwing Jesus a dinner? Or at the throne of grace, Telling a man, if only you would, and times are rough, and I just wish that you would. He says, trash or treasure? A dinner with his favorite cats, Lazarus, Martha. And now it says, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. God's greatest commandment is not, come on, give God a little love. Show God some love. Like, you don't hear that in the Bible. It says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your mind. Like, the idea, no reservations. You don't share God with another God. You don't share the place for God in your heart with your spouse or with your kids or with your friends. God says, when you treasure me, it's no reservations. You love me with everything, and no one competes with me. 
Here they have a dinner, and Mary takes it. Now, Mary, Lazarus and Martha are here saying, yo, they honor him. They're part of the people that are giving him honor. But it zooms in on a level of treasuring Christ that we all need to take note for, note of. It's treasuring him to the point of no reservation. And he emphasizes that it, he, she took a pound of expensive ointment. It was pure nard from this plant. It made, uh, it made a fragrance. They usually diluted it so that they could, you know, it would be enough to spread uh, for, for a long time. She takes the undiluted stuff and anoints his feet. David, who also treasured God, was offered a free field, threshing floor, so he could build an altar at no cost to him, so he could give God something. Like, yo, you got to give God, you supposed to give God something? Don't worry, I got one of those. I got to spare one of those. You can have it. Good, that way I ain't got to really give it to God. Yeah, let me get yours. It's like if you say, yo, give me $10, I'll put it in a plate, and you don't pay them back. Let me give God your $10. He said, David said, I will not offer to the Lord stuff that costs me nothing. I don't even want a discount. Give me the threshing floor at the full price. That's this idea of treasuring him. This is going to affect the way you view giving, tithe, whatever you want to refer to it as. When you don't treasure him, 10% looks like it'll break your back. When you do treasure him, you're like working. How are you going to come up with the 10% if you feel 10% is a legally binding amount? You're going to be like, Dad, so wait, I know what I'll do. I'll, and you start working it to bring a hefty sacrifice to God because you treasure him. No reservation. You're not looking for change. Um, excuse me. You got, like you're, you're, it's no reservation. Cain and Abel. The Bible doesn't give us details on why God rejected Cain's but accepted Abel's. But the Bible does says Cain gave, and it just stops right there. Then it says, and Abel gave of the fat portions. See, it just takes it a little further. What do you mean of the fat portions? It's going to say, Cain didn't, Abel didn't look for like a scrawny lamb that wasn't like, hey, let me get a lamb that I wasn't going to mess with anyway. Oh, you, you ain't even got no fat on you anyway. Come here, I got to do an offering to God. I won't miss you at all. <sighs> In the Bible, it's this idea that when you treasure him, nothing is too much to ask. And all I'm saying is, here we go from a Jesus that some people want to kill to a Jesus that some people want to throw a banquet to. Some people want to serve him, Martha. Some people want to just recline and be in his presence, Lazarus. And now Mary comes, and she takes the cake. And she says, wait, let me get an expensive bottle of ointment that's going to blow the roof off the, 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 the hinges. And I'm going to pour it on my feet, pour it on the Lord's feet, because not only is he worthy of no reservation, he's worthy to undergo some humiliation. Listen, all four Gospels talk about somebody, a, a, a female, anointing the feet of Jesus. There's really two events. Luke's account is a sinner who's anointing his feet with her tears, wiping, doesn't line up with the details of Matthew, Mark, and John's. Matthew, Mark, and John still tell it from a different angle. Mark and Matthew talk about Jesus being anointed on his head. Matthew and Mark talk about they were at a person's house named Simon the leper. 
Luke talks about a man named Simon's house. So sometimes you say, yo, Luke, they at Simon's house. But Luke doesn't call him Simon the leper. So the idea here is when you look at Luke's account, Simon's the same as Mark and Matthew, but all these other details are not. They contradict. So you say, man, maybe Luke is talking about a different incident. And Matthew and Mark give details that John's not concerned with. So they, call, they say, oh, it's at a dude named Simon the leper's house. And they talk about he was anointed his feet. And they talk about all these other details. All John wants to talk about is the uniqueness of her anointing the feet of Jesus. Now, anointing people with oils and perfumes was common in their day at festivals and when you wanted to honor somebody. What was unusual is anointing the feet. Now, in Mark, Jesus says, leave her alone. She's anointed my body. The idea here is when you put all the evidence together, John is focusing on the feet even though she anointed his whole body. She poured it from the head all the way down to the, look, Mark says she cracked it. Talking about no reservation, right? She cracked the bottle. Like, not she opened it up. Oh, a slip. Well, I might as well just use it all. No, she intended all this is going on him. Clearly, it was too much. It was expensive. We're going to hear that it was over a 300 days wages worth. Now, you would think that Jesus still would be happy with 150 days. Labor. Like, okay, I'll give you 60. See what I'm saying? And so you go uh, more than 150 days and you start pouring in. I mean, it's too much anyway. Who can take all that perfume? It, John is just giving us a picture of what treasuring Christ looks like. It looks like overdoing it. So when we underdo it or do just enough and we think that's the evidence we treasure him. Let me, uh, it's late. Look, he's worth a no reservation ethic. Give him your all. He's worth your humiliation. The idea is she's at his feet. The feet was the job of the most insignificant slave of everything. For it to talk about her anointing his feet is to say she took the humblest position out of everybody there. Even Lazarus who was reclining in a, in Lazarus, no, this is not to take anything away from Lazarus. But just like Jesus was with his disciples, and we're going to see that as we come, and he gets down and he washes their feet, cats didn't even feel right. And the Bible says that Jesus washed their feet. And what made it so crazy is the highest being in the universe did the job of the lowest being in the universe. Here, Mary is doing the same thing. Mary is washing, anointing his feet after anointing his head. And John says, let me just focus on her humiliation or her humility. That's what treasuring Christ looks like. Not just infatuation, but humiliation. Not only that, worth more than our reputation. He's worth more than our reputation because to wipe the excess, she didn't say, hand me some towels. She took her hair down. Women did not do that. She was surely, you know, we always talk about her like Mary and Mary and fled over to France. <laughs> Where do you think we get that from? Because people thought Mary had a thing for Jesus. When she out there, because women didn't do that. That was promiscuous to take your hair down. And Mary is saying, but he's different. Like he's different. This isn't just me flirting with a man. He's different. He's Lord. And she pulls her hair down and she wipes the excess perfume up with her hair. Like 
this is crazy. I don't know if it's going to make sense to us. But it's a picture of, dang, you, you feeling him. When he's treasure and not trash, you see his death differently. You see his worth differently. Worthy of no reservations. Worthy of your humiliation. Worthy and worth more than your reputation. Lastly, you see his rule differently. Let's just close right here. And I don't mean to slight the triumphal entry, but it's got one point the way John uses it. John leaves out a whole bunch of details because all John wants to tell you is <laughs> he's Lord. Listen, verse 12. The next day, um, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, let's finish out this um, in chapter 12, verse, uh, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Here's another classic case of a dude who has a secret agenda but hides behind a noble cause. Same situation. One who sees Judas and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are on the same wavelength. Look, he said this not because he cared about the poor. <laughs> But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it uh, for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had seen, excuse me, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So now they want to kill Lazarus, because once again, Jesus needs to be out the way for my plans to work, and anybody that's got also helping people to like Jesus have to be out the way, which is why a lot of us don't like Jesus or Jesus' people. So he goes on. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet them, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Excuse me. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone out of him, going after him. The triumphal entry concludes. We have one more, one more story that we'll get to next week, but you got someone, and John's idea is, let me tell you, the lamb is heading to the slaughter. And let me tell you the physical events that did it. He grew in popularity. The Pharisees and Sadducees said enough is enough. They plotted to kill him. Jesus knowing it, Jesus strategic about laying his life down, 
He's moving there. He goes to the place where they're going to kill him. But on his way, he rides in announcing, I'm king. Now, they had a different idea. They have palms and they scream Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. Their idea was the person that's going to get Rome off of our backs is here. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have palms, which in Revelation uh, 5, 9, we see the, the multitude around the throne. They have palms because palms were just a way to talk victory and celebration. So they've got their victory, uh, uh, their, their signs of victory and celebration out. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he, the one who's going to save us now is here. It says that, though, they were there because they saw him do the sign. In John's uh, book, whenever you're just there because he does the signs, you're there for the wrong reason. And so Jesus comes in on a donkey, and he says, you're king, Zion. That's Jerusalem. That's, that's the capital of the people of God. He says, your king is here, riding on a coat. When Jesus Christ comes on a horse, that means he's coming for war. When he comes on a donkey or a coat, that means he's coming for peace. He's the prince of peace. So you look at him and you say, treasure or trash? I see his death differently when he's treasure. I see his worth differently when he's treasure. I see his rule differently when he's treasure. And today we're just asking you, how do you see the Lord Jesus? How do you see the Lord Jesus? Like, what is he doing to you these days, especially you who've been under this series? Every week is Jesus. Is Jesus in the way? Is Jesus and his will and his program frustrating you? I'm not coming at you. I'm just laying before you one who is treasure. Coach your soul and say, soul, he's treasure. Ask God for the insight to appreciate him as treasure, the kind of treasure, treasure that appreciates his death as more than just a way for, for him to get out of our hair, the kind of treasure that appreciates his worth to the point where we're not counting our pennies to make sure we don't give a cent over what we, is expected of us, the kind of treasure that makes us say, well, I'm not going to embarrass myself, I'm not going to the kind of treasure that makes us say, well, 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 well I, I, I believe that he is who he says he is. We get into the place that we need to respect the rule of Jesus Christ. And so as we close our eyes and bow our heads. We're going to move to the Lord's Supper. But as you sit there, you got to remember these authors, they wrote with different perspectives, same event, but they chose to stress different things. I hope you saw today. I hope you saw the difference between people who see him as trash and people who see him as treasure. I hope you see the difference, and I hope your heart lunges for a Christ who's beautiful.
who's glorious, who rules, who died a substitutionary death, who came on a donkey the first time, extending peace to those who are at odds with God, who one day will come in on a horse. When Jesus died on the cross, which that's where he's headed for, he died to offer life. When he comes back as the resurrected Lord, he comes <laughs> to secure that life for people, but then everyone who's outside of him will experience what the Bible calls a second death. If you don't know the Lord Jesus right now, cast yourself on him. We, in our bulletins, we have a place where you either can indicate that you're visiting or you can indicate that your heart has attached itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want, some, you want to tell us that and you want us to stay in touch with you because you want to grow and you want us to be instrumental as a church in that process. If you're trusting Christ and you want to indicate that you want us to be a part of that growth and development, fill out that portion in that bulletin. Or let someone know. Give us your information. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you as we get a chance to grow in our appreciation of you. Thank you, Lord God, for the Lord Jesus who killed it on earth. Oh, you killed it. You played it so smooth. You were never flustered. You were never frustrated out of being out of control. Uh, you, were, you were a tactitioner. You were, uh, you were a smooth operator. Um, you knew when to duck. You knew when to uh, fall back. You knew when to engage. You knew when to answer a fool according to his folly. You knew when to remain silent. Oh, Lord God, develop a people here who get rocked off the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And those of us that have lived lives uh, that seem to indicate that we kind of love them, Lord God, take it up a notch, Lord God. Take it up a notch in us, God. We want this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for we are not on earth to just twiddle our thumbs. We haven't been left on earth to just get used to a status quo living. You've placed up here, uh, us on earth, Lord God, to be lights, uh, salt and light. You you placed us in here to give you glory. And so as we center around the Lord's Supper, Lord God, the, the, the supper that you instituted, Lord Jesus, for us to remember the fact that you gave yourself for us. Uh, and you sparked a new agreement with us where you place in us the kind of heart that would be able to treasure and value you. We want to say thank you, Lord. Bless your people with these words in Jesus' name.